Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 3, People of Earth, is over, but we are just getting started. Here on Post Show Recaps, we have pulled our ship up to the force field, and we are hailing you for a conversation about everything that happened in this very awesome episode. With me, as always, is the guy that I'm just going to declare he's my number one and I'm the captain, uh, Mr. Mike Bloom. Hello, Mike. Hi, Jess. I'm really happy. Oh, hold on. I had to take off my big bug-eyed mask to be able to talk with you. It's very tough to breathe in this thing. Yeah, it, it looked it looked pretty tough, but it looked very badass. It looked very badass, and it's one of those things, especially from a disco setting up. Okay, is this supposed to be a new species, or is this just a discovery take on an old species like we saw with the Klingons? Turns out none of the above. It's just a human disguising himself with a big old helmet. It was so, it was so space balls. Like I expected yes, them to rip that helmet off and be like, I can't breathe in this thing. Exactly. Like I'm, I, you know, it's it probably less spherical in nature than those that were, you know, aboard Mega Maid, but it definitely was very similar. And I do wonder if aboard Titan, there was sort of a brainstorming session. It's like, okay, how do we come across as intimidating to the population of Earth as possible? Like, what do they hate? How about giant flies? So let's try to imitate giant fly people and then they'll really, really dislike us. Yeah, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that particular board meeting. Yeah, though, I mean, it seems like a pretty sad situation for them on Titan, so that might be the only uh, speck of creativity they are able to pour their pursuits into, because the other brainstorming they're doing is like, okay, how do we live? How do we make yeah. it through the week without having to eat our population? Yeah, this is our survival meeting, and everything's terrible. Um, maybe our last Hail Mary is to just dress a guy up like a giant fly and send him to Earth to steal some shit. Or maybe we could hail Mary, Mary Wiseman. We can hail Sylvia Tilly and see uh, see what she does. I mean, that's a, that's a fair plan as well. Tilly knows what's up. A little bit, yeah. I mean, she has her own little B-plot that we're about to get into, but Jess, I mean, as the title suggests... We are going to Earth, and unlike a Will Smith and Independence Day-esque welcome to Earth greeting, they are greeted in a very different way. And I think this makes a lot of logical sense. I do feel like season three so far has had a really nice flow to it in that episode one, we saw Michael Burnham. Episode two, we saw the rest of the characters. Episode three, we brought them together. And you would imagine the first place they would want to go would be Earth, because it's like, all right, we don't know what's going on right now. Let's go to a place that we we know best, right? Home base, or at least what we thought of home base is Earth. And that is just like, it's a microcosm of how much things have changed in nearly a millennium. When you look at the time jump, you can assume that a lot has changed. But I think this was sort of like the concrete way that everyone got slapped in the face to be like, this is not the universe you remember. Yeah, it's very interesting that they make such a big deal out of Earth is now self-sustaining. It's like, oh, you're kidding. It wasn't self-sustaining before? 
Well, yeah, I mean, stop me if you've heard this before, Jess. Uh, a relatively new population in the, the grand scheme of things still becomes like a bit of a superpower in an accelerated amount of time, then declares that it's going to close itself off to foreigners for fear of danger and attack, becoming isolationist in the process, but also becoming a bit xenophobic to those that might legitimately need their assistance. Now, that doesn't sound like anybody I know, Mike. Definitely not. Definitely not. But it's, I mean, it's very clear. And I, I watched the writing room this week that had the writers, Bo Young Kim and Erica Lippolt, as well as the Jay Frakes himself, the director on. And they were very explicit about like, yes, it was that. It was yeah. very clearly that. We are very clearly referencing that. I, I really love that Star Trek can move with the times. And it's funny because the original series of Star Trek was very much that as well. It was, always saying the future is going to be better and everything's going to be awesome and there's going to be interracial kissing and there's going to be Russian guys who are not evil. Yeah, and you can have sex with anyone you want. Yeah, it's the future's awesome. Everybody looks good in these sweaters. (laughs) And then we've moved into, you know, Next Gen kind of did that same thing, but it's like we've got even more diversity. We've got... Mm -hmm. We've got interesting relationships we will explore. And then you have DS9, which was like, even after there's been a horrible war and in the midst of great suffering, we can find hope. And now where do you go next if you're still trying to push this optimism? You got to make things even worse, right? Mm. Are we in the postmodern era of Star Trek with these modern seasons, because I we talked about this with Picard, right? Picard also had a very clear POV when it comes to making mef- references about refugees and otherism and AI to a certain extent. And there's obviously obviously been a lot of discourse as to disco discourse as to whether mm-hmm. these modern series, in some people's opinions, either fit within the the realm of that tapestry that you spoke about from the Trek franchise or not. I feel like they do take on a distinctive tone and maybe I don't want to say it's less about the optimism, but maybe it's more about the realism of you can certainly strive for that. But the way that populations naturally function, there are limits to that optimism. And I do feel like both Picard and Discovery in particular are very open about that, as opposed to, like you said, Roddenberry's original vision, which was to the point where he said, hey, there must be no fighting amongst crew members on the on the Enterprise, because we want to show how great the future is, that even inter-workplace confrontations are not a thing. Yeah, until until Bashir and O'Brien show up. Yeah, exactly. Or even like, you know, uh, even in Next Generation, after you know Roddenberry passed away, they're like, all right, well, let's start sneaking in some stuff that we want to do. But I don't know. What I've been thinking about this, Jess. Are we in the Pomo Star Trek phase here? It makes a lot of sense, Mike, because I think that the thing that was missing from Roddenberry's original vision is how totally fragile that utopian state can be. Mm. And I like that the Pomo Star Trek is is pointing out, and even, even next-gen DS9 and Voyager kind of didn't do this to some extent. They just kind of it was almost imperialistic. It was like, we have the best deal and we're going to go bring our great deal to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And now we're saying that this great deal that we had, people had to fight hard to bring it to you and we have to fight like hell to maintain it. And sometimes we don't succeed at that. And then we have to fight to get it back. Yeah, and I mean, everything Michael, Michael, about- 
Yeah, everything about having a good life is a fight. It's a constant fight to make sure you keep it. Man, Michael had that brilliant line in that opening montage. We didn't give everything to this fu- version of the future. I'll be damned if I let it stand, essentially, of like, look how far we have come. We cannot be complacent right now. We, we've we accomplished one goal. Yes, control is inert. The world as we know it is saved back in the 2300s. But that doesn't mean we can't make the 3200s better or 3100s better. Honestly, Mike, is there a better line to encapsulate right now than that line? Yeah, exactly. It's it's this idea of you can be optimistic, but it does require work and it does require action. There's there's people who think and there's people who act. And, you know, I certainly not to get too contextual into into things nowadays, but I think a lot of us have been struggling in lieu of many issues that exist in the world today that that weigh heavily upon us sort of like what can you do how do you cope with the malaise and the pressure and the weight that exists out there and i know personally i i am a type of person who's like i need to turn things into actionable items because sitting there and moping and grousing and driving yourself crazy is not going to accomplish anything if you give yourself something to do that even the smallest push might put something in a direction that you want it to go that's not only going to help you feel better, but it's going to help accomplish a larger goal if many do the same. And I feel like Starfleet, especially in this episode, was really encapsulating that idea of, yeah, things suck right now. It doesn't mean we have to live in the suck. We can try to unsuck this stuff. Yeah, I think I think you just you just repackaged that in an even more profound way, Mike. We can oh, make it unsuck. Yeah. But <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the optimism that's needed right now and maybe the optimism that we had before that, you know, the world is going to be a better place in the future. That's one kind of optimism. But the optimism we need right now is that we have it in us to get the work done. Right. And we are going to be able to bring about this future that we need. And so I, I really, I feel like this is just, this is like therapy for me. Like mm. this, this show. And some some of the shows that we watch right now are kind of escapism. It's imagining a world that's very different from ours. And it's ironic that The Amazing Race is that escapism for me right now. And Star Trek Discovery is like the real world tough love pep talk that I need. Right. Well, that's also sci-fi, though, to a certain extent, right? Like, I think it's certainly allegorical to be like, yes, these are worlds that you could not even imagine in your mind's eye. But the thing that makes them relatable and has you keep coming back to these characters are the fact that they do possess these characteristics. And so that being said, you know, the the core conflict of this episode is so quintessential Star Trek. I, I, I really, like, emphasize myself when people say, like, this isn't Star Trek. This isn't the Star Trek I know. Watch this episode and don't tell me that this is not both a conflict and a resolution we have seen umpteenth amount of time. So, yes, like false and all, this is a Star Trek series to the point where we yeah. have the sort of like the hackneyed. Now, don't you see you were more similar than you thought. <laughs> so let's come to the table together and talk it out type of thing. Was this not the original series episode of the guys that are have a black, black yeah, exactly the, the black and, and white face. hat? Yeah, the like the Milano cookies, uh, but just sort yeah. of swapped with, with each other. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing is there have been so many different packages of this message for a reason because it's a message that needs to be brought home each and every time. And albeit, I thought the maybe the execution of the message was a bit chintzy in my opinion. Again, I, I think what disco 
Disco it does a lot of great stuff, but I think sometimes it tends to swerve into sort of like the saccharine and like the let's make a big bloviating speech that will pump <laughs> everybody up. And you could sort of feel shades of that at the end of this episode that makes you feel like, okay, once in a while is fine. We don't need this in every episode. It almost feels like Danny Tanner giving a speech to his daughters <laughs> at the end of every Full House episode. But again, that being said, that is something that's existed with the series from the very beginning. They have not been subtle about the messages that they have been trying to make. So it's like, while I may not be the biggest fan of it, I also acknowledge the fact that like this is... This is a part of the series that is a love letter to that series that spans now nearly 60 years. It's true, but it, it is that. But then they also plugged Giorgio right into the middle of it to yeah. make sure that we understand that they know how saccharine they're being. Right, exactly. What was Giorgio's line? Like, diplomacy takes too long and she just takes off the helmet and basically is like, yeah, yeah, we can yada yada through the next three pages of dialogue here. I'll get everything settled right now. But on, on the other hand, how many times have you watched a television show or movie, Star Trek or no, where you are like, if you people would just sit down and have a conversation for five minutes, this entire movie would not have happened. Yeah, exactly. They they really, well, maybe it's because there was just so much else going on in the episode that they might not have had time to do it, but they're just sort of like, all right, let's just sort of get this over with. Uh, and I mean, I will say it wasn't like a typical by the book Star Trek disagreement. And then I do think that the whole like Captain Ndoye perspective was interesting because again, it, there was some world building there or literal world building and that she served as the messenger to basically give the whole exposition in the ready room, right? About what happened to earth. So she's valuable in that regard, but they were able to sort of walk this fine line where, you know, there is the serialization that comes with Discovery and Picard and started with Deep Space Nine. And then there's the episodic nature that comes with your TOS, your TNG, etc. And they sort of did both here, where it was like an episodic thing. I do not think we are going back to Earth anytime soon to check back in with the UDEF or whatever the acronym was. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, it was also speaking to that larger mystery, which I think has been pretty hammered home at this point to be like, OK, our main question of the season is, what is the burn and where's the Federation? I, I'm sticking to my call that the burn is actually Burnham. I mean, it, it makes that much sense. And we can talk about some other connections that that might occur as well, because we found out a little bit more during Michael's uh, montage in the very beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. Right. That like because I think initially book just said that like, hey, a bunch of ships exploded at the same time. But it turns out that before that, dilithium was actually becoming more of a scarcity that for some reason, all of its supplies were running out. And so it was just like a bad day for dilithium. Yep. I, I mean, the original way it was presented to us was like, dilithium, no worky. And then it was like, oh, yeah, something happened to all the dilithium. And we didn't really, I think we didn't really appreciate that all of the ships that had an active warp core exploded at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that was a powerful visual. And it was something that I think having the crew process it is different from having raised on Vulcan to stick yeah. with Starfleet Protocol Michael Burnham is not the person you want to react to powerful emotional news like that. Yeah, because these are all Starfleet officers, right? There there has to be a part of them that at least projects themselves on that vessel. Right. You know, when, when you have Detmer, who again seems uh, two for two in terms of shell-shocked episodes, being like, uh, millions of people died in an instant, wiped out. 
Though I will say, and I think we spoke about this, I can't remember if we spoke about this with Lower Decks or Picard in terms of these series <laughs> comparing notes. I don't know. I, I, you know, we might go with the whole Burnham theory of it all, but after the whole attack on Mars thing from Picard, at least part of me has to feel like it was some sort of inside job. You know, maybe that's just a conspiracy theorist to me, but considering what happened with the attack on Mars in Picard, you'd have to imagine that somebody wanted this to happen. Yeah, or, I mean, I, I'm kind of leaning toward it's a giant fuck up on somebody's part. Mm, mm-hmm. Which, that's maybe just me being influenced by watching the Umbrella Academy, <laughs> which has as its kind of recurring motif, they're trying to save the world, and every attempt they make to save the world results in them causing the end of the world. Mm. And so, and I think we're also sort of informed by last season being Michael Burnham is actually the Red Angel who's instigating all of this at the same time that she is trying to stop it. Right. It's this idea that like it's always going to come back to the main characters at the end of the day. Now, that being said, it could come back to some of our newer characters. Who knows? Maybe books, people and their whole divergent philosophies were the ones that caused the burn all that time ago. Who's to say? But I think to your point, considering what we have seen of the track record of Discovery so far, it would not be surprising if maybe the the relatives of Michael Burnham or maybe maybe slightly connected to Michael Burnham, maybe like the relatives of Sarek and Spock ended (laughs) up being the cause of all this destruction. Oh, damn those Vulcans. It's their fault. Exactly. We thought we escaped them uh, in this new time period, but apparently (laughs) they still loom a shadow very large over this time. We're postmodern and we're post-Vulcan, Mike. You would think so, but the Vulcans are here. Well, I don't know. We're getting Unification 3, so I think we're actually going to be dealing with the Vulcans very soon. Yeah, I guess we'll, I guess we'll find out. Well, we want to know who those other stars are because we know it's not yeah. Earth. Yeah, exactly. Or we were very surprised to find out that Earth is not one of the big two stars. So yeah, the, what Indoye sort of fills in here is that essentially after the burn, uh, they kept getting raided by essentially dilithium pirates, basically just getting like mugged consistently for the dilithium that they're like, nope, doors closed. I'm getting a lock. You're not allowed to come in here. Uh, and so bye-bye Starfleet, because Starfleet also suspected it might have been an inside job or a, a directed attack and decided to say, well, maybe having an out and proud location in one place mm. is not the best idea. So they're gone. And in their place is the UEDF, uh, which I guess is sort of just like, I don't know, I'd be intrigued to hear like when that popped up. You know, when they put up the force field, was that like an immediate thing? We need to get a security force in there. Or could this be another sort of like grab for power with another group under Earth's borders? I mean, whenever you have a regime change that's that big, it's definitely a power grab on somebody's part. Right. So, I I mean, from what it's worth, Indoye did not seem particularly malevolent. But that's not to say that maybe the bureaucracy... And just the, again, the pure, like, strict standards of the UEDF of if we don't know you, we're going to shoot you down might be malevolent enough. Yeah, I think I think it's more like I, I do think one of the overarching one of the overarching themes of this particular episode was kind of both sides maybe don't have good points. But both sides have good people that need to have conversations with each other on an ongoing basis. Right. It's sort of like the ideas that they stood for are flawed, but the people that are representing them are not. 
And so right. we, that's why you need to get bodies in the room, because at the end of the day, you could prattle back and forth at each other about, you know, how you're wronging the other person. But once you sort of get used to the, for lack of a better term, humanity of those behind the other party, it, it helps you sympathize a bit. I mean, you you see that in Doye's face when <laughs> as she finds out, like, the poor stuff that befell Titan. They thought, like, oh, yeah, Titan, you're good. Go out and do your own thing. You're fine. You're emancipated. And then it's like, oh, no, we blew up a bunch of our stuff and we are dying. And we tried to ask for help. And you said, new phone, who this? And now we don't know what to do. It it, it was a a dawn of humanity upon her. And I mean, I don't think that means that Earth's borders are now completely open, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's a we can work together and help each other kind of moment. Yeah. And an acknowledging and, of the past as well, because again, yeah. these, these, they were part, they were under the same umbrella for a long time. Uh, and it just, I mean, it's only a century ago. And I say only a century, but again, discovery jumped forward nine plus centuries at this point that they decided to say bye bye to Titan. That it, it's something that, you know, you could easily welcome back into your life in a certain perspective, uh, or at least, you know, trade information for resources. Yeah, it's kind of like how you could make a tentative step toward like making an alliance with one person without bringing every single pirate in the entire galaxy down upon your head. Yeah, exactly. Though I wonder, so I guess were all of Wen's Raiders, were they all ships from Titan? Or do you think Wen has been like picking up a crew, you know, like almost forming his own uh, like Ocean's Eleven gang to try to get into Earth and get the dilithium? I kind of think it's just his pals on Titan because I don't think he wants to particularly worry about anybody else right now either. Mm. And so to that point, I also wonder because all warp capable ships are Dunzo. So that means that like nobody is traveling outside of their respective quadrants. Are these like regulars, you know, or are the, the marauders that Earth is used to from all different sort of parts of this quadrant? Yeah, like, do you have to travel four years to go steal your dilithium from Earth? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is you could really get I mean, if this were if there were a series set in the 32nd century, it could be around like a Voyager ask. All right, we're on our way to Earth. It's a five year mission because we uh, it's it's almost like uh, in getting in the warp drives all going kaput. It's like if you're driving a stick shift, but you can only it's like you're always stuck in second gear. We're like you, you can't, you can't shift any higher, and so you can only get up to a certain, uh, you know, speed. And you're like, all right, it's gonna take a longer time, but I guess I'm gonna settle in and wait until I actually get there. Hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your millennium. <laughs> and but you know what, Starfleet will be there for you as soon as you can find them. Yeah, they'll be there for you eventually at some point. And so I, and I guess you know the bigger. There, there was a mystery, certainly, that was addressed about the Earth stuff, but I think the bigger mystery moving forward is the Adira of it all. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to get into that, because we finally get a... I would say a, we finally get another new character introduced, but I was wondering when, you know, uh, Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander would finally come to the table after they were announced, and one of them is here, and assumingly will be a part of the cast for at least the foreseeable future. Yeah, this is a great... This is a great segue here, although I want to I want to stop down before we really delve deeply into the Adira situation, because there was something I missed. And I want to know if you have a good answer for this question, Mike. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot of conversations about um, who's got dilithium and how are they going to get there? And we have to hide all our dilithium to make sure that they don't think we have it so they don't steal it from us. And my question is. 
how are they going to explain how they got there without dilithium? Like they just show up and everyone's like, oh, hey, new people. Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? How long did it take you? What are they going to say to that, Mike? I didn't really get that answer. All you get is Burnham saying, scan the ship. We don't have any dilithium. And they should be like, how the F did you get here? Yeah, so Saru's cover story, which albeit fell through pretty much. I think Saru is sort of 0 for 2 in terms of trying (laughs) to come across as someone who he's not in the future so far, is that, again, going back to the Voyager analogy, that Discovery was like essentially stranded out in distant space back when the burned happened. And it's been making its way back to Earth ever since. And it finally got back after being stuck in second gear for those hundred years. And now they are the descendants of those that were originally aboard the original Discovery. So they flew back from wherever the hell they were at impulse. Yeah, essentially. And and then so they finally cruised their way into Earth after a century to be like, oh, what's going on? This is why we look so old and different. This is why our spore cage can be compared to a museum is because we haven't been uh, we haven't been getting the updates to our phones. We're still running a different iOS. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay, And that's why they they dropped out of spore yeah like saturn yeah yeah, so that they could like cruise because it'd be like you said it looks super suspicious if they go to black alert and then just instantaneously appear right in front of earth yeah what that should have raised some alarms on titan wouldn't you think don't (laughs) they have to drive right past titan to get where they're going yeah maybe that's why they were sort of tailed that entire time but again Wenon's his ships can only go so fast too so they made they probably were followed the entire time uh or maybe they just have such I don't know, derelict beacons that they didn't necessarily pick up on it. But yeah, I mean, that cover story was up to a certain extent. It doesn't seem like Ndoye really questioned them or figured them out the way that Zara did last episode. But Stamets outright uh, admits it to Adira, a person yeah, from the UEDF. We need to talk about this. <laughs> we need to talk about this a lot because this was a very questionable move on the part of Paul Stamets. Yeah, who as someone who like has been characterized as being very like uptight, and maybe this is like his post coma like loosier, goosier Paul Stamets. But yeah, I was. I mean, again, it was also tough because the Adira storyline, maybe in a different type of episode, would have gotten more focus because I believe Adira was only in what like three scenes total, uh, four scenes if you count Stamets and Tilly talking about Adira. So it's clear they had to pack a lot into a little frame. But yeah, Stamets is uh, all about, I mean, I don't know when Tilly told Stamets like, hey, show them your funny mushrooms and get them on your side. I don't think she meant like, hey, give up the jig. <laughs> you know, tell tell them what's going on, despite the fact that they work for like this defense organization that we are trying to get one over on right now so we can get back down to Earth. Yeah, they just tried to shoot us, but we'll just tell them everything immediately, even though we don't know their motives. That was a little bit weird, but I like what you, I I like what you did there about the packing a lot into a little tiny frame because that's pretty much Adira, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, essentially this is, uh, at least one, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of lives and personalities packed into one person who is only 16 years old, but seemingly contains the knowledge of at least one very important character. Well, and I, at first I thought this was just to be like Wesley Crusher of the future. Right. Like exactly. Oh, here's, our, here's our requisite child prodigy of the series. Yeah. And it, it's kind of, but it is kind of odd. It's like, okay, you're 16 years old. How are you consenting to this? Because on Trill, 
they pretty much have to go to like they have to get like a PhD before they're even yeah. allowed to I'm, get a symbiont. Yeah, there's a DS9 episode right where Dax gets like shadowed by someone essentially to just figure out if they're worthy for that program. Yep, one of my favorite all-time episodes, starring one of my favorite. Hey, it's that guy actors. Um, so yeah, it it did seem like it. I mean, there's a lot of questions I have just based on everything I know about trills. Mm-hmm. But we can we can come back to that. Let's just talk about Adira the person um, just coming aboard and like, you know, throwing a little keystroke logger on the science lab. And then this was just kind of like, they're both pretty dumb here because Adira's not supposed to have that. And Stamets points it out pretty quickly. It's like, well, I can tell you everything and you know, you can, but you have to do what we say because otherwise I'll just tell your bosses that you brought this keylogger that's clearly not authorized. Yeah, so it's, I mean, Adira essentially was went to, you know, uh, like the amusement park with their parents and the parents are like, it's time to leave and Adira's like, no, and slashes the tires of their car. To be like, <laughs> no, we can't leave, we have to stay here. Because obviously Adira has their own motives to be linked up with Discovery, which we'll get into for a little bit. But yeah, it was... A bit brazen. You know, obviously Stamets and Tilly are immediately onto them. I mean, when they find out that the signal's being blocked, they're like, oh yeah, it was, it was that, it was that twerp. It was that rascally little 16 year old, uh, you know, uh, goon who was walking around here. Cause the others were pretty bureaucratic and by the book of just like, you know, looking down their noses on people and checking boxes. And the deer is like, what does this do? Hey, what's that <laughs> thing over there? Do you mind if I touch this? And so admittedly, um, maybe Admiral Tall was, he was himself someone who is not exactly a subtle person. And that's just not, is not a part of Adira's personalities yet. Yeah. It's, it's fair. Also, I need, I need to say that. Josh Wiggler would have a field day with adorable little Adira, let alone Rob, because both notable fans of teenage characters on shows that don't have other teenage characters. Now, does it count, though, if the teenage character also technically has the history of an older man at the same time? It's a it's a valid question, Mike, and I do not know the answer, but I do know I can hear Josh being, oh, look at the cute little baby. It's a baby <laughs> on the starship. Exactly. And, and Rob like, I'm- being like, I want to burn them down with fire because I hate children. Yeah, exactly. Rob, I think, would even dig into Stam. It's harder than us. I'm like, what are you doing even talking with this little little a-hole? Yeah. You know, like who, who tried to screw up your, your ship and almost get you blown up. Yeah, that that's true. Like Rob would have Rob would have many things to say about Stamets even having giving the time of day to Adira. Um oh, and Mike, I think it's it's fair to note that Adira is going to use they them pronouns going forward even though nobody in this episode used they them pronouns for Adira. Yeah, so Adira, if, if you, we talked about this in our preview, but for those that are not in the know, uh, when Adira was announced, it was announced as the first canonical non-binary character. So we are going to be using they, them pronouns. Uh, to your point, it, it seems like at least because they were presenting female initially, I can imagine that's why Stamets until they were referring to them as, as she, her, but we are going to refer to Adira as they, them moving forward unless being told otherwise. I was surprised we didn't get a quick clarification there. I wonder if that's going to come like I I use they them. They should have been like, cool. Well, maybe that's going to happen next episode because it's it's interesting in that we knew that Ian Alexander, who is going to be the first canonical trans character in Star Trek, is a trill. Uh, we've seen the spots. Ian Alexander has said so. We felt like that makes a lot of sense, given uh, the, the nature of the trill, which we'll get into 
But now that Adira is being involved with the Trill, I, I wonder now, like, is it, does that complicate things? Is it that they are non-binary or is it more so that they're actually like super binary in a weird way in that they are a female person, but now possessing the qualities of a male host. And that's what makes it a, a technical non-binary perspective. Well, it's interesting that this was something that the gender identity of it all was something that they sort of tried to explore in the early nineties in DS nine. Mm-hmm. They certainly Dax had these moments and of course you saw Cisco calling Dax old man. Yeah. And there was a conversation. You see a lot of, me- you see a lot of memes about this now about, about Dax running into her old pals, the Klingons, and they say, Curzon, it's you. And Jadzia's like, no, actually I'm Jadzia now. And they're like, Jadzia, it's you. <laughs> and so there was, there's been quite a bit of that, not to mention the episode rejoined where, where Dax meets a spouse that her previous host had and the two right. of them. Uh, despite being both women are in love with each other and it's kind of like this transcends gender, but it was always very much that the gender you were before you got joined is the gender you're going to stay. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that we're going to maybe it's very possible that Adira's identity shifted somewhat when they were joined. Um, but it's also possible that Adira always knew what, what gender or lack thereof they were and remained so and kind of exerted some some authority over the symbiont. But this is an interesting thing to talk about with the um with the Ian Alexander of it all mm-hmm. um eventually joining the cast because when they started kind of pointing toward like sort of hinting that we were that there was a trill element to this story. I was like, oh, is this the trill? Because I know one of the two characters that was joining was a trill, but right. this one doesn't have spots. That's weird. And so this has some canonical precedent. And this is a very interesting thing, especially when you consider that this is a Jonathan Frakes directed episode. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You're picking up what I'm putting down here, Mike. Uh, the first time we ever saw trill in a Star Trek series was in the next generation episode, the outcast in which there was a trill diplomat who came onto the enterprise and started up a little something, something with Riker, because I think that's, that's the play when you go on the enterprise and then was tragically killed. And that's when Riker finds out that trills are part host body and part symbiont. And the symbiont needed to be preserved. And so that symbiont went into Riker for a little while. And I had forgotten all of that when I'm like, that's a human with a trill symbiont. That's weird. Isn't that going to kill them both? And how does that work? And then I recalled that Riker very briefly hosted the worm for a little while until its new host came. And then that new host turned out to be a man. And got then the Dr. Host. Crusher fell in love with. <laughs> yeah. And it was... It was very messy and complicated, and the the new trill was like, "Hey, we can pick this up. It's fine." And Wrecker's like, "I, you know, it's it's okay. I'm I'm cool." But hey, there's Crusher, and that got very complicated because you really aren't supposed to reassociate with people from your previous life. Um, 
Yeah, and then, then then Crusher has her own reversal where I believe then the trill goes into a female host by the end, and you see like the yeah. female host now approach Crusher, and and Crusher's like, mm, okay, well now I realize the you know the the capabilities that this can happen, and I'm sorry, but this this just can't be. So I mean, it was definitely two steps forward and one step back to a certain perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, there there was the host, like you said, and then the outcast where Riker also had that episode, which was more speaking to like the non-binary and trans yeah. perspectives of the the species that determined yeah. was deliberately uh non-binary and there was that I whole- was kind of conflating those two episodes Mike it was two different episodes wasn't it it was yeah, so, yeah, Riker so didn't host- fall in love with anybody even though that is the play well it the was- first yeah the, I, well I think uh Riker do you were right in that the host Riker did host the the symbiote for some time yeah. but that was more a crusher thing but the outcast was when Riker fell in love with the person who obviously in the allegory for for being closeted uh had declared a gender yes. then gets persecuted yes. for okay. it and gets killed for it Right. That was the one where they weren't really a gender and they picked a gender. Yeah, exactly. Uh, gender is interesting in Star Trek because you also have um, Bolians who have four genders and they mm. have to all like they have to find four people to get married. Yeah. But I mean, you bring up a great point about the biological aspect of all because that's the first big question that I had. And, you know, obviously they had to do a bit of an expo dump at the end there when it's revealed that Adira was a trill and that, and it's interesting as well because you hear them explain it and you're like, why does this sound so foreign to them? And then you remember to your point, Jess, like, oh yeah, I guess it's for like the TNG disco proto era. I mean, trill had existed, but I can imagine it was a bit more of a, of a weird thing than something you directly experience because we're so normalized to it because like you said, the characters of Jadzia and Ezri Dax were main components of Mm DS9. And the weird thing actually is that since DS9, we have really, save for a few background appearances, not had a Trill feature since. And which was one of the many reasons why I was excited there would be a Trill element in this season because it is a fertile, fertile ground, which was shown in the seven seasons of DS9 that I am just, I'm flabbergasted that the idea had not been brought up in the series since. Yeah, it it has been really weird to me that we haven't seen them. Also, I want to retroactively apologize for conflating those TNG episodes. It's been at least five years since I've revisited that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the it's the the episodes. They yeah. sound like they the the structures are very similar, yeah. and they deal with like very similar types of things. But it's, I mean, and that was also I remember when, uh, at least I remember when I was watching and specifically rewatching Deep Space Nine, and I, I got to that first episode and I saw a trail. And I'm like of all the species of the one-off species that we've had throughout Star Trek TNG, they pick like the one, this random one, but we discover that like, it's a fantastic opportunity. And you experience that particularly with the Dax character from like season three onwards, when they sort of change from her being like a floofy doofy, possible Julian Bashir love interest to like kind of a badass. It's like, Oh yeah, this, this is like a really cool story opportunity. And that makes me, Hopeful that they'll be able to do the same with Adira as well and Gray. Yeah, it, it will be. It will be an interesting thing, and I wonder if there's going to be some tension there. Like, I don't know if Gray is a joined trill or an unjoined trill, and will this be a problem if you have an unjoined trill whose like whole ambition was to have a symbiont, mm-hmm. and they meet this human? Like, this was an Ezri Dax thing because she never was supposed to be joined, and. She gets joined without having to do all the studying. And it was kind of a thing where it's like, oh, well, you didn't really, you didn't really earn this. And I wonder if that's going to be an issue too, because I can imagine, I can see the backstory there with the Dira very clearly. It was like, oh, here's a Trill who's stranded on Earth 
and decides to stay when the whole kerfuffle happens mm-hmm. and um is stuck there and is you know still part of the federation but then dies and what are we going to do with the symbiont there aren't you know there are trills around we got to put it somewhere let's put it in this random teen it it does you can see you can see that trajectory pretty clearly and i can see it's very it's very reminiscent of how Ezri Dax ended up getting joined you know what it reminds me of actually i can see the scenario that you're painting right now it reminds me so much of Deep Space Nine, how Major Kira ends up carrying Keiko's yes! baby, right? Yes. Of like, oh, th- there's this accident. We need to, we need to transplant the symbiont, and this this person happens to be on the ship, and they're the only source that we can go to. Because to your point, I don't think this was like a joining at birth, and that Adira has been housing this symbiont for 16 years. I can imagine no. this is a fairly recent thing, especially because, as Sarut alluded to, and this is what's going to keep the mystery alive for a little bit, even though this this symbiont had a previous host as Admiral Tall, Adira does not have access to those memories and that personality. Yeah. So, like, while they are a repository of answers, the answers are not there yet. Yeah. And it, it's interesting how that works, too, because, as I recall, from browsing memory alpha and dim memories of this episode when they put the symbiont into Riker he remembered everything that the symbiont had experienced yeah so maybe it's like a maturity thing or maybe it's an idea of like opening up your mind I mean not to get too much into what's coming next but it does look like we are continuing on this story thread to the point where they're going to a planet I don't know if it is trill but it looks like we are interacting with some of those uh, those goopy pools oh, that we have I love seen. The goopy pools that we have, that we have seen prior. So we're definitely. I mean, it seems like a very. Are we having a Jantara? I don't know. I mean, we've seen it's, it. Seems like a very Adira and Michael focused episode with like some very trippy visuals, which should be very fun to see. So I think we're going to keep looking upon this. But I, I mean, obviously, this opens up a huge gamut of things as to you know even just from like a physiology perspective you know Riker could house the the symbiote for a while but the biologies are not necessarily compatible but on the other hand I mean let, let me bring up a question that's been asked to us by by a couple of listeners and we talked about this in the preview but let's let's take the temperature again Jess what are the chances that this symbiote is a Dax mm, zero you think so? Yeah, I, I don't think we go there. I think the symbiont's name is Tall. Mm, so you think this? It's just that Tall was the. So this is technically Adira Tall. Yeah, this is technically Adira Tall. Right, because because um, uh, for those that don't know, so technically the trails sort of take like the last. But it's like when you marry someone and you take their last name. That's yeah. what happens when you join with a symbiont. Yeah, exactly. So I, I assume that Tall is the name of the symbiont. Um, it, it could be. Yeah, it could be. Like you said, maybe it is it can only be a temporary thing. And like Adira just has to carry this thing around until we find an actual trill. What if this trill is already on disco? And what if it is, Ian Alexander's character and it's like, Oh, well, we <laughs> can- just been in the background the whole time. Yep. Yep. Um, Oh, wow. There you are. Um, and some Paolo come over here and exactly. And oh, and should, you know you. what? They, they missed that opportunity. It should have been gray. That was shoveling the Leland guts last time. That would have been a fun way to introduce like, Oh, <laughs> you've been here the whole time. Of course we remember you now. Yeah. Oh, hello, gray. Yeah, good job shoveling those guts, which you've been clearly doing for several days. To be fair, that ensign did show up in this episode greeting Michael Burnham before things turned slow-mo for a hot second. So, again, it could have been there if they wanted to. Yeah, they could have put it in there. They, or they could have, like, retroactively CGI'd 
and yeah. into there. Is it like, oh, I was there. Remember when we when we uh, when we overthrew evil Lorca when we went to the mirror universe? I was there the entire time. Yeah, or flashback to the to the battle of the binary stars, and there's <laughs> Gray was there the entire time. Yeah. But yeah, so. So the assumption is, so Admiral Admiral Tall, who, again, this is going to be a dearest sort of like main purpose right now, is because Tall has the last known Starfleet communication to be sent out. So, again, the HQ of Starfleet, it's gone off the map. Nobody knows where it is. If the one person who might know where it is is Admiral Tall, who died, what, two years ago, I think they they said, Mm -hmm. on like some, some mysterious vessel. You could imagine that that was when it was, it was the host was put into Adira. Into and some so, 14 year old punk. Exactly. And so now it's going to be their job to sort of access Adira's memories so that as tall or as, uh, as I forget the, the first name of Admiral Tall, they'd be able to be like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Now I remember it was actually there. Here's the passcode and now we can get there. And it, it's also an idea that makes so much sense because, you know, we experienced this in the opening montage, how Michael sort of had to explain a bit as to what exactly happened in the years between season two and season three. But that being said, we are still limited to the lifespans and histories of the characters that we know, right? Like yeah. book has only lived so long. Yeah. All these characters are like, yeah, the burn happened. I wasn't around for it. But with the trill, you have a history book. You have someone who has at least lived a good portion of time through a many a body to be like, oh, yes, I remember when this happened. Uh, I was wearing a nice shirt that day and here's everything. So it's it's like we it's a perfect way to access 900 years of history that ordinarily we wouldn't be able to do logically. Yeah, it would be sort of like if we were just landing on Earth and our only contact was an 18-year-old and they had to explain 9-11 to us. Exactly, right. Of like, well, uh, yeah, my parents talked about it and I think it was this that happened, but there was not that personal experience that they can speak to. And that's why Adira is going to be so important because, I mean, even looking beyond the Admiral Admiral Tall, if there were hosts before that, then Mm -hmm. they can speak to even what happened before the burn, possibly how it got to the burn. What even happened before that? It's, it's a great way to sort of shade in those years of history where ordinarily Disco would have kind of written itself into a plot hole by being like, well, nobody was around in the year, I don't know, 27 something that to actually describe what happened. And shortly after the burn, uh, Federation Wikipedia got taken over by vandals. So we can't really <laughs> tell you what happened. Yeah, there those dilithium either. raiders got onto the wiki pages to try to anti-Earth slander, and so they just took everything down. Yeah, they had to lock the page for dilithium because it was just getting too crazy. So I guess speaking of those new characters, too, because we sort of say goodbye to Book here, but like that, this can't be uh, no. like an, an out for Book, right? No, Book's coming back for sure, because for one thing, according to Book and Burnham, they definitely didn't do it in the past year. Mm. And I don't know if I, I either either that is true and they still need to, or I don't believe it at all, and they definitely were, and they're going to have to again. Do you think it's like the lady and the gentleman doth protest too much, and that they were both asked about it, and they were firmly like, no, no, it definitely didn't happen. She's not my girlfriend. We didn't do anything of the sort. We were friends. Yeah, I think, I, I'm not sure exactly why they wouldn't just be like up front, like, yeah, we've been banging it out for about 11 months now. Yeah, well, because Michael talked to a certain extent and some of the like a little bit of a mini arc to her character this episode is the residual guilt she feels for 
letting go of the idea that she'll find Discovery, only to find them. She's like, well, this is awkward. I thought I'd never see you again. And I will also say, uh, Saru, like, take the hand off the throttle for a little bit. You know, like, I know you're captain, but like, don't throw this onto Michael of like, I don't know. I don't even know who you are anymore going around gallivanting with this man. Yeah, well, and it's also, it's really funny that Saru's like, okay, we need to finish the conversation we were having before. We need to do that right now. Because for Saru, it was like a few hours. But for Michael Burnham, it's been a year. And she's like, I don't really even care about that anymore. You can be the captain, whatever. Yeah, Albert Vargas made a great comment, actually, a few minutes before we were recording here about how in the scene between Michael <clears throat> Michael and Tilly, which was a great, I, I always, I forget how good the Michael-Tilly dynamic was. I think that was one of my favorite parts of season one of Disco. And to have Tilly be like, I always knew I'd find you, Michael. And to your point, realistically, it's been like 24 hours since Disco came out of the mm-hmm. wormhole. So, I mean, good. I'm glad you had a day of hope. But you would imagine that that's more a line that goes to Michael. Yeah, you would think so. That's that does it to your point it does seem like they must have taken each other's lines there. Um it, it it's very reminiscent of season 4 of mm-hmm. Fear the Walking Dead when characters spend the entire season mourning the death of somebody that died a year prior and then kind of yada yadaing the death of somebody that dies during the season in real time. Are you what do you think about cuz I think I'm going to say it's a resolution that Saru's captain now. I do not think we're sort of constantly doing the will they won't they between Michael and Saru in the captain's chair. Did you like how how sort of succinct that was? Yeah, I think we don't want to spend a lot of time on it. We got a lot of other places to be, but I worry a little bit for Saru now because this has kind of become the spinal tap drummer yeah, of Yeah, this is the Star defense Trek against Disco. the dark ets position. Yeah, it's going to be I would be a little bit worried. Yeah, it is definitely the defense against the dark arts teacher. Um, I don't want anything to happen to Saru. Yeah, though, and I think it also helps that we had an entire episode prior where, like, it was Saru specifically as a captain without Michael there, and he showed his stripes, as we talked about last week, that you can understand the decision more than, like, no, we want Michael Burnham, we love her as a character. It's sort of like, no, I think I think Saru has shown plenty of times that he's a captain, and if Michael's more than happy to have him sit in the chair, then, like, all the power to him. As as you've talked about, she has sort of realized that there are more important things to life at this point in time, especially than who gets to sit in the fancy chair and say, engage. It's true. And I think it's really interesting. We spent some time talking about Burnham's Rumspringa, um, where you have, you have Giorgio pointing out, well, you know, you were always so logical and by the book. And now that you have, now not- you're by the book in a different way. Oh, ho, ho. Apparently not, though. Like, they didn't do it. They said they didn't do it. We yeah, have to very, believe them. They're very firm that they went on many, many trysts into bogs and pulling off maneuvers that they nicknamed, but they definitely have not done it. Yeah, they give each other, like, sly winks and knowing glances, but they definitely didn't do it. See, that's another reason why Book has to come back, is because even, again, I saw in these scenes that, like, Sonequa Martin-Green and David Ahala just have such fun chemistry platonic or not that it's like you you have to keep stoking this relationship no matter what it turns out to be they they have such a good back and forth with each other that this can't be the last time that we see the two of them interact right and we know he's coming back at some point because there was a tremendous little clip from the last uh, from the pilot uh from the premieres uh from the premieres preview of what's going to happen this season super cut yeah, the supercut. We saw we saw Grudge climbing on Tilly, and that hasn't mm. happened yet. So we know he's coming back. And I think there's also a shot of like him down on some sort of like 
like deserted terrestrian planet, like yelling in ecstasy, like, woo, I can't believe I'm doing this. So <laughs> I have a feeling Book's going to be around the show. I guess the question is, is he still going to be around with Burnham? But I can imagine since he is very easily in range, he's not really going anywhere due to his capabilities that she could very easily call upon him if she needs him. Yeah, unless, like, they must have given him some dilithium. He can go somewhere. But- well, that's well, that's why he came on the ship in the first place, yeah, right? Because right. she offered him dilithium in exchange, which is also a fun Michael Burnham deal of, like, don't worry, the ship has dilithium. It'll be totally cool if I go get it. Everyone's going to be fine with it for this random guy that they don't know. I, I, I'll explain it to them. Yeah. But it's also, like, it's too bad that they had that little interlude in the bar in the last episode because she could have just been like, yeah, I need, I need some dilithium. And they would be like, yeah, that's cool. We got a lot. And without knowing that it was like a rare commodity at the time. So do you, here's another question. Do you ever think we'll get some, something, whether it's an episode, a flashback episode or a short trek or what have you about that gap year of, as was mentioned a few times, sort of like the adventures of book and Burnham. I mean, we might get it as a self-contained actual episode. I suspect there might be something worth revealing out of that year. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, and I think probably more than what we got, which was, you know, Burnham cycling through several hairstyles as they go through and make deals and shake hands with people on planets. I think there's got to be more to that. And I think there might be some things that she learned that she will drop into the conversation when it becomes important to do so. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of like, I don't know if you've ever seen Arrow, but, you know, the character of Oliver Queen spends five years on an island in between like, you know, the the first point of the flashbacks and where we find him. And they do a very similar thing many, many times where it's like, oh, I found this thing in my modern timeline. This reminds me of this important thing that I found out in the flashbacks that will be pertinent here. And so I could see them, you know, I think they were actually pretty... I can't actually remember if they ever really did. They did very sparing flashbacks in season two. They were all about it in season one as we were getting to know Michael Burnham on Vulcan. So who knows? Maybe they'll break out the flashback machine and do it again. If to your point, if there's like Michael Burnham being like, oh, this person, I remember this person from this adventure. Yeah, I I don't know if they I don't know if they'll give her a whole episode or if it'll just be like occasional flashbacks where they get to show Snake with Martin Green in a different wig. Mm-hmm. Again, a different, and that's how you know it's a different part of her life. Uh, I'm just, I think maybe I'm, my perception is colored by Walking Dead and what they did with Morgan, where he, he shows up four seasons later and then they have one episode devoted entirely to what he was doing for those four seasons. Maybe it'll be like a bonus episode, right? Of like, oh, I know you wanted it. Because otherwise, I don't know. I kind of like this idea of the gap you're sort of being like the noodle incident of Star Trek Discovery, where like uh, now they yes. can make all these references to it and be as outlandish as they can. They can literally tell and not show and not need to like live up to that deal of, yeah, let's see them wade through this bog and get covered in leeches that they have to peel off. Yeah. But maybe the entire maybe the entire time was just an entire year of like smoldering glances. Like, you know, this palpable sexual tension that they never consummated. And maybe we don't need to see that. Yeah. But I we could see was, a little bit of it. I wonder what was going through Book's mind as Michael was like, all right, I go pound one out in the a, like weird hollow deck as I fight a man barefisted. And he's like, damn it. If only I could be that man. Yeah. She's working out something there. Like, there's exactly. something that she's not getting outside of the holodeck. 
Yeah, though, I don't know. Maybe she it seemed like she used the year to fill him in at least a little bit of stuff, considering that he knew the names Tilly and Detmer and Giorgio. Uh, so, you know, clearly she opened and up Gray, to him. of course, Mike. Yeah, of course. Gray. Who can forget about Gray? Yeah, the most going to be most, like, oh, yeah, you must be Gray. The most necessary cast member on, on our uh, crew member on Discovery. You know, I could imagine that. I don't know. May- maybe she opened up about some things to him, uh, including the whole Ash Tyler situation. He's like, "Ooh, she's just coming from a tough breakup. I, I don't want to deal with this. Maybe I'll-, I'll wait a year and then see what happens." Every man I fall in love with turns out to be a secret Klingon. <laughs> oh, if only no. It's either a secret Klingon or a man who like has weird light up dots on his face and he can c- talk to animals. I don't know. I'd go with the weird light up dots every day. Of the yeah, week. I mean, listen, he's doing something, good. and that's the other thing as well. Is you'd have to imagine that superpower. Like they couldn't have given him that that power and then have him appear on two episodes. Yeah, that's that's too tantalizing. You know that there's going to be a transworm or transworm equivalent somewhere in the future. Yeah, I can imagine so. So it, it's so I guess we'll say we'll put a bookmark in book ah. for now and then we'll see him pop up maybe as soon as a couple of episodes from now maybe as late as like the end of the season what they did at season two of like oh and here's saru's sister and here's laurel who is in like two episodes of season two i could very easily see them do something like that yeah it's like hey remember this short track <laughs> yeah exactly like that i could see that happening so luckily i think i think book is going to make a comeback just depends on when that's coming yeah, I, I hope it's soon. I don't want him to hang around in space too long. I want him to come back to the fold. But we'll have to see where the journey takes us. It looks like next week we're not going to spend too much time on the whole Adira doesn't remember. We're going to go make her remember. We're going to go make them remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question is just like, where is, I mean, the episode is called Forget Me Not, which again, makes sense this idea of uh, waking up memories. I believe the plot summary says Burnham and Adira visit the Trill homeworld. Okay, that answers my question. We're going mm-hmm. to Trill proper. While Saru's efforts on the discovery to help the crew reconnect yield surprises. Okay, so Saru's going to host like a mixer, it sounds like. He's going to, you know, Saru is the kind of guy that wants to play icebreaker games. Like they're all going to be lying with their heads on each other's bellies, yeah. yelling, ha. Let's tell two truths and a lie. Yeah. So it seems like the crew, at least part of the crew, had their own little like reconnection thing in the final scene, right? When they got to go to San Francisco and visit the giant ass tree outside old Starfleet Academy. Yeah, they were visiting the Tree of Life from Disney Animal Kingdom. It really did seem like that. And there was actually a funny thing on the ready room where uh, some behind the scenes footage obviously shows that that tree is fake. And it, it really makes you feel bad for actors sometimes when you remember like, oh yeah, Amelia Clark had to act against a tennis ball on a stick and like these five <laughs> crew members were like, oh, it's so big and it is literally like a giant blue funnel on the ground and they have to <laughs> pretend like this is a magnificent giant tree that they have so much associative memories with. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. Like, And I love that Saru was like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, take all the time you need, hang out. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, five. And it was really like a five more minutes. That is like very well, five more minutes. And then <laughs> I'm intruded to Jay Frakes knows his way around uh, planning a shot. Obviously, I, I did find the beautiful panning out from the tree to what San Francisco and 3189 looked like it was like it was really sweet. You know, it, it was few and far between that we would visit Earth in Star Trek just because the concept of the franchise was about looking beyond. But I don't know. It It, it warmed my heart to be able to see a familiar setting, even though, as this episode proved, it was a completely unfamiliar location. 
Yeah, Star Trek always had a kind of a messed up idea about home. Like yeah. every time somebody went home, it was like, no, you'd rather be in Starfleet because your home life sucks. Right. I mean, that was the whole uh, Brothers episode, right, of TNG. Yes. It was like, well, Picard, you get some shore leave, but also you wrestle with your brother in the mud and then have a breakdown about being turned into a Borg. Right. Yeah. And you, then you have like Kirk stuck in the Nexus and his perfect life turns out to be he's actually really bored riding horseback. Yeah. Or like, hey, Cisco, why don't you come back and also get yelled at by your dad for <laughs> who does not approve of you being in Starfleet? Yeah. Or Esri Dax, your family hates you. Yeah, so nobody really wants to go home, uh, or at least going home does not usually bear a lot of fruit there. And that's the other thing. Maybe that also is just sort of like a subconscious thing of the show of like, well, we like when people are out there in the stars. Like, I guess they can take a break, but we don't really want them to. So, like, let's push them to get back on the ship as soon as possible. Yeah, let's give them five minutes. That's all you get. Yeah, exactly. That's sort of like, speaking of that Brothers episode, that was like Worf and his parents, right? He was just, like, embarrassingly rolling his eyes the entire time. He's like, when is this over so I can go back to becoming a badass Klingon instead of the adopted son of two Russian parents? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very, very much. Although I did like that all of these, it's kind of like the, you got a lower decks moment, really. Because, yeah, I mean, we know Tilly pretty well, but the rest of them, it's like, oh, yeah, you random person that we've met once and you other random person, you got a couple of lines and now you get to come down to the reunion, too. Yeah, it's so strange because, I mean, it was a little lower decks in that we do have the ensign there. I think the others are at least lieutenants, but I don't know. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, like, I think Star Trek Discovery is trying to have it have its cake and eat it too and as michael says cake is eternal uh so that makes sense in like wanting to build out this massive ensemble but then also not necessarily dedicating time to building out that ensemble you know like i i don't necessarily like detmer's the one who i care about the most but like i could take or leave reese or <laughs> rice owo's cool owo can hang yeah owo can stay yeah, but like all these others, like I don't necessarily need to care about the reaction they have to the tree. But I guess if they are the more junior members, to your point, they might have more reverence for the location, considering that they're the ones that have had more recent experience with it. Yeah, and there's that. I thought it was a good thought it was a good opportunity to at least get these people sort of on our radar, because I think that was something that, you know, original series and TNG struggled with a lot, mm -hmm. where you know, you would have, you didn't have named characters except for the, you know, the Scooby gang. And DS9 did it a little bit better, where you had people that showed up every once in a while, and you'd kind of build them up. And then sometimes you'd kill one of them, and it would hit a little bit harder. Like, I'm thinking particularly of O'Brien's friend Enrique, who showed up in like five episodes, and then you thought, oh, he's going to be around, and then they kill him. Yeah, or even like a, someone who takes a hard turn, like a like an Eddington, right? A guy who's yeah. originally brought in is like, okay, this is the Starfleet higher up who's watching over everyone's shoulders. Surprise, he turned out to be a Maquis. Yeah, there's there's that one. There's also, I guess TNG had Barkley. He was kind of maybe the closest thing you had to somebody you saw a couple of times, and then he gets one story, and then he goes away. Yeah, but there's also, oh God, what's her name? The one who uh, spilled coffee on Picard, who was working with Jordy. Like, I feel like she had a few appearances and then she disappeared. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want to say her first name was Linda, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but there definitely is someone who were there who had like a few appearances and maybe it just didn't work with the show. They're yeah. like, yeah, let's get let's get rid of her. Or, but I guess Miles O'Brien started out that way, too. 
Well, originally, yeah, originally it was Argyle, and then they were like, yeah, let's bring in O'Brien, and he happened to catch that eventually it, it escalated into something. So there has been grave that has been paved, ground that has been paved for possibly a burgeoning of these characters. It seems like they are laying some work for Detmer. I don't think it's going to be a main focus, but I could see it be at least like a C-plot, and maybe that opens the door for, you know, a, a re-storyline to possibly come out in like a season four. Yeah, I don't think I want these people having storylines, but I do want them being a part of the other storylines. And then, mm. then we'll see. Like, I, I want them to go on an away mission and not just because they're the ones that get killed. Right, exactly. Or it's like, put them, match them up with different characters. You know, like, it was, it's always fun to see Stamets and Tilly or Stamets and Reno bounce off each other, but like, how would Stamets and Bryce interact yeah. with one another? Th- those are sort of connective lines between characters that we don't have drawn yet because it seems like on the ship we have five or six characters that mainly talk to each other and then everyone else happens to be in the same room at the same time when they're on the bridge like go into the mess hall and find like owo and bryce and tilly having lunch yeah and i think we saw that actually in a bit of a bit of season one uh so i want to see granted i think they have much higher priority things to get into now than like the colber ash tyler cafeteria fight that we got in season (laughs) two But, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful for some of those more downtime moments. It does seem like maybe that's what we're going to see next week. You know, if, if Saru is like, well, we got some t- some time to kill before Michael and Adira come back. Let's let's, you know, have a little bit of like a, a Starfleet Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe maybe our wishes will be granted as soon as next week, Jess. Why am I picturing Saru like throwing the party that Michael Scott threw when he had the Michael Scott paper company? <laughs> Or like the one that Dwight and Jim throw when they are celebrating Kelly's birthday. That yes. like it's like we are Starfleet printed on a, on a banner yep. in the cafeteria. Yep, with little like half inflated balloons. Yeah, exactly. And it's like uh, all the hollow cake is like I don't know whatever Kelpie and eat like it's flavored after that, and nobody particularly likes it. Yeah, do they eat seaweed? Or is that just? I'm trying to remember. What I feel like, I, f- I feel like they are herbivores. I do feel like that. I feel like the well, they were also it was the whole prey predator thing, right? So I don't think yeah. there was necessarily a food chain going on with the Kelpians. And Saru just gives off vegan vibes, doesn't he? Well, he's rail thin, so I can yeah. imagine there's not a lot of mal. There's a lot of malnutrition on Kaminar. I can imagine. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that's like the one conversation you can engage Saru about. Like it all comes back around to, did you know I'm vegan? Let me tell you about my vegan diet. Maybe that's what his mixer is going to be all about. He's going to convince everyone to switch over to his Kelpian diet. Yeah, it's like, have you heard the good news about a plant-based lifestyle? <laughs> exactly. Like, Or maybe it's an MLM thing. Like, while I all have you here, I'm going to sell you some hollow Tupperware that you can use for all your get-togethers. <laughs> yeah, I need to recruit some people on the 100-person starship for my downline. <laughs> Exactly. Like, oh, we're just we're just forming uh, the Delta of Starfleet is actually a pyramid. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, Saru already sold me all that stuff. It's not going to be very good uh, for you to be, you know, you can't you can't sell me the same thing. Saru just sold me Bryce. So, yeah, that's the problem when you're selling within a, uh, you know, but they do have the spore drives. They can literally warp around the universe and try to, maybe that's the detour that they end up taking. If they're like, well, the Federation sort of is, is donezo. So like, now let's focus on our business. Let's get back all the dilithium in the world by running a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Listen, if they take a hard left into that, I will be very intrigued. I, 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 th- yeah, now I kind of, I kind of want like season three of the dream to be about, to be about like Star Trek 
Star Trek MLMs. <laughs> like honestly, though, with the CBS monolith, if you say it, it's almost guaranteed to be well into existence in some way. Listen to you know how much stuff have we manifested? Yeah, which is another reason why I I think it is not outside the realm of possibility that Adira's symbiote is a Dax because this is the series that said Spock has a stepsister that you never mm. knew about. Like they are not afraid to make connections to canon. So I will not be surprised whatsoever. I think it's an illogical and an unnecessary choice, but I think that Disco is certainly capable of doing it. Yeah, I guess so. Um, they have the reverence for the universe at least. And it, but that doesn't explain why the symbiont's name is Tal. Like, yeah. did, did Dax end up, like, having to go through witness protection or something? Yeah, that could be a thing as well. Just, like, I don't know, some bad stuff happened in the in the two, 2900s, and Dax had to change their name to Tall. Three letters, but kept one just to keep a bit of themselves, but the two other yeah, ones had to change. Yeah, they wanted to retain a little bit of their right, sense of identity. Because, you know, you can also, like, you could also wipe out the memories of one of the symbionts, as we found out with Dax. Yeah. That's very true. I mean, we'll see. It looks like we're going to get some answers as soon as next week, which is fun because now that this big question has been introduced, we saw this especially in season two, how they give it to us in drips and drabs. So I'm happy that we're at least like, you know, I feel like it's been three very solid episodes of forward momentum so far. And I'm hopeful that they won't stall at any portion of time. And I'm hopeful that they won't. And it looks like next week is going to keep on keeping on. But I, I guess we'll see. Yeah, it'll it'll be fun to get some momentum now that we've now that we've established where we are and gotten the gang back together. Now it's time to have the adventure. Mhm. All right, so Mike, what else is going on for you? So, here on Posture Recaps, Josh Wiggler and I talked for nearly 3 hours about The Man Behind the Curtain, season 3, episode 13, the infamous how John Locke on the wheelchair episode. I know uh, I, an episode that inspired Jessica Lee's one of your favorite song parodies, uh, not only in Lost, but in general. So yeah, we've got, you could p- basically play Dan in a box, like probably around 60 times uh, in the equivalent of listening to the podcast. So be sure to check that out. And then I know that Jess, you and myself and Rob Cesarnino are getting together every week to talk about The Amazing Race doubly, not only doing a recap, but also a special sort of catch-all show called The Tar Pits. A very chaotic episode of Amazing Race this week, but so much fun to watch and get into. So if you're into some reality television this fall, you know, Jess sort of alluded to it before. It is a really fantastic escape if you are looking to get away sort of like destination travel from a lot of stuff that's been happening uh, in the world today, I heavily suggest you check it out and check out our coverage as well. And also on CBR.com, I've got some recaps going on. I've got some special breakout pieces, like getting more into what are trails and how does Adira play into that? I'm going to talk a little bit more about the UEDF and what that says about, you know, what earth has done in the past 900 plus years. So lots of stuff going on at a Mike Bloom type for everything. Yeah, Mike, I clearly should have just had you give us the trill lowdown without relying on my on my imperfect memories, because I'm clearly not a trill myself. The trill lowdown, if you will. Yes, the trill lowdown. That was that was a reach. Even for you, Mike. <laughs> That's not saying a lot though. Yeah. So I want to invite everybody that has been listening along to this madness. 
Uh, to give us some feedback, we have a, we have an email, Star Trek at postshowrecaps.com. We'd love to engage with you there. You can also, uh, leave us a comment on postshowrecaps.com. You can join our Patreon and mm-hmm. join us in the patron discord, which is a very fun community where we talk about all kinds of stuff and we really go off the rails. And it's been a great opportunity for other people to connect. Uh, supporting us on Patreon gives you the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us keep the lights on here, but it also gets you some perks. You get special access to podcasts, including one that I did this week, where I joined Josh Wiggler and Emily Fox to watch Interview with the Vampire and discuss everything that happens in that extremely long and sometimes tedious film. <laughs> and, there, um, and there's a Star Trek connection, like, sort of third-handedly in that Doug Jones has played a vampire before in What We Do in the Shadows, and you discuss true. the topic of vampires. It's true, and What We Do in the Shadows is basically making fun of Interview with the Vampire pretty much constantly, which is something that I had forgotten until I rewatched it recently. So there is that, and um, also Trills are basically just vampires without drinking the blood. Yeah, essentially they're like non-parasitic vampires. <laughs> yes. Except they're parasitic in a different way. Yeah, parasitic, but at least not in like an outwardly. It's more like a remora than it is like a leech, you know? Sure. Sure, we'll go with that. And um, in addition to Amazing Race that we have already mentioned, I join Josh Wiggler every week to talk about Fear the Walking Dead and Walking Dead World Beyond in a podcast we like to call Fear the Walking Dead World Beyond. And our good pal Chappelle has been joining us for these. And the combination of the three of us is magical. And you know, I laugh a lot on a lot of these podcasts. I have never laughed so hard as I did with last week's roundup of Fear the Walking Dead and World Beyond. It was glorious. And I highly recommend you don't even need to watch the shows to check this stuff out. It's good stuff. In terms of time, because I know that the, I know Fear the Walking Dead is at least doing a half season. Are you like halfway through the first half of the season? I think. I think so. Yeah, Um, something like that. It's like eight to 10 week spurts. So that's the other thing as well as I think if you're looking to get into a show or at least like a recap, it's a short jog. You know, it's only going to be eight to 10 weeks of recaps. Also going on on post show recaps besides Lost on the Hatch and Ang in there. I know that uh, the Everything is Super podcast is transitioning to go arachnid, becoming Everything is Spidey, uh, talking about Spider-Man Far From Home before going into some other Spider-Man films. And I know that um, The Mandalorian, if we go from Star Trek to Star Wars, has come out at the time you're hearing this a couple of days ago. And Josh, Kevin Mahadeo, and Latanya Stars are going to come back together, the magical trio from the Lovecraft Country recap, to get into everything from what I'm sure is going to be one of the most highly anticipated episodes of television this year, even just from a memetic quality solely. Yeah, and it's a nice, gentle transition from Discovery into this because Discovery felt like it was basically taking place in the Mandalorian universe these last couple episodes. Yeah, I mean, I would not be surprised if that environment that Book finds himself, you know, uh, just so happy and ends up being like very similar to like Tatooine, the most Eisley Cantina. We basically got the most Eisley Cantina last week, just in a more desolated perspective. Yeah, I mean, this is the way, man. Exactly. So lots of stuff on poster recaps. And as just said, there's plenty of reasoning to become a patron. What I will say is, you know, I think this is coming out actually on the last day of the month. We always say become a patron on the first day of the month because they usually re-up patronages at the beginning of every month. So you don't want to get charged twice. So just wait until that clock changes over to November 1st and be sure to become a patron because there is so much fun to be had. We are jumping in drill pools, uh, doing it cannonballs. 
Indeed. It's, you know, lots of goopy, wormy goodness. <laughs> uh, that should be the title of the episode next week. I, you know, I, I wish it would. I, they should really come to us. We have, we have all the best titles. You, I would hope so, at least. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, I'm still hung up about the part one of it all. I think that would have been the, the first hang up I would have had. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't have let that one slide. And so speaking of letting things slide, you can slide into our mentions over Ooh. on Twitter. See, look what I did there. That was I great. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you can reach me at Haymaker Hattie. You can reach me at a Mike Bloom type. And we are still early in the season, so we are looking for engagement with our podcast feeds. So if you haven't already, subscribe to our Star Trek only podcast feed at postshowrecaps.com slash Star Trek. And if you want to leave ratings and reviews, of course, that is superb. We will not shoot at you a la a, an, Earth, uh, an Earth-based force field. Said so we welcome you in a loving embrace. But yeah, as the season starts off, uh, Trekkies are looking for podcasts to be a part of and the more we pop at the top of those charts when a new season comes around the more likely they are to become a part of our fabulous community so help us help you in a manner of speaking yep i think we can all help each other here mike it's a it's a you know it's a coming together of the when and the endoye and we're just going to rip off our helmets and get to know each other as people yeah exactly and hopefully it's people and not bugs hopefully it's not a reverse when situation and new what if they, you know, what if they ripped off his bug helmet and there was just another bug under there? It's a bug, bugs and bugs on bugs, bugs all the way down. That's right. Bugs all the way down. So speaking of all the way down, we are all the way down to the bottom of our podcast, Mike. And I want to thank you for enduring all of this with me and for riding along on this crazy journey of discovery. And I want to thank everybody for listening along with us and wish you all a great week. Live long and prosper. We'll see you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.